today I had intended uh, to end our series entitled uh, What Jesus Looks For in a Church, which has been a study of Christ's messages to the seven churches in Revelation chapters uh, 2 and 3. But uh, in preparing this message, it became very obvious to me it will take uh, two weeks uh, to cover this last message on the overcomer promises. At the end of each of Christ's messages to the seven churches, he gives a command in light of his evaluation of the church. That command is then followed by a promise offered to any individual or individuals in the church who will obey the command. These seven promises, one given to each of the seven churches, are known as the overcomer promises because, as we're going to see, each one is addressed to the one who overcomes. The word translated overcome is nikeo in the Greek text, which literally means to win the victory, uh, to conquer, to prevail over. And, of course, to win a victory presupposes an enemy to be defeated, a battle to be won. Therefore, you can only become an overcomer when there's something to overcome, and you overcome it. And we've seen in our study of the seven churches, there were many opportunities for the believers in the church to be overcomers, uh, because all the churches had battles uh, to be won in order to remain faithful to Christ. Uh, most of the churches were battling severe persecution from the Roman Empire and slander uh, from Jewish unbelievers. They were in danger of losing prop property, uh, suffering economic boycott, imprisonment, and even martyrdom. Uh, they were tempted to retreat from their God-given mission to live and share the gospel of Christ in order to avoid suffering. Uh, there was the battle with false teaching that had infiltrated uh, some of the churches. There was the intense battle with moral temptation with some believers already compromising the moral absolutes of God and falling into moral impurity. Uh, we saw Ephesus had left their first love, neglecting the priority of worship. Sardis was nothing more than a spiritual morgue uh, with a temple with just a few true believers in the church. Laodicea was conceited, uh, complacent, and uh, blind to the fact that they had literally pushed Christ outside the church. Bottom line, in each message to the seven churches, Christ commands the believers to overcome specific challenges and sometimes even failure through repentance and obedience of faith in Him. And then following the command comes the overcomer promises. And as I mentioned earlier, there are seven of them, one given to each of the seven churches. So look at the introduction in your sermon notes uh, to discover the purpose for the overcomer promises. The overcomer promises are given to Christians who conquer life's trials and temptations to demonstrate their devotion 
to Christ. It's just as simple as that. They're promises given to Christians, Christians who conquer, conquer life's trials and temptations, motivated by their devotion to Christ. The promises accomplish two things. First, they provide the overcomer, the one who conquers the challenge in his devotion to Christ. It provides the overcomer confirmation of salvation. Their overcoming, and this is very, very important, does not earn salvation, but it gives proof of their salvation. Second, they provide the overcomer encouragement to remain faithful to Christ when encountering adversity and persecuting, knowing a glorious future awaits the believer. All the references in these promises to blessings in the afterlife and eternal rewards make the clear statement to the believer, a better day is coming, which should provide hope and strength to persevere today. Romans 8, verse 18, captures this thought beautifully in a single sentence. Paul wrote, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are what? Not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. For momentary light afflictions, talking about the trials of this life, is producing. Those trials, the suffering we have today, actually is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Uh, look at the quote from Richard Mayhew, uh, past dean of Master's Seminary, who uh, captured uh, the powerful motivation provided by the overcomer promises to remain faithful to Christ. Whatever price the overcoming extracts in this life, the cost will be nothing compared to the incalculable benefits in eternity. So let's look at Ephesus. We're, hopefully I'm, uh, we're going to get through the first four churches, maybe just the first three, but I'm going to shoot for the uh, first four. And we're taking a very, very simple approach. You'll notice for each church, I've given sort of a summary statement initially of what the over, uh, overcomer promise entails, and then uh, give you the overcomer promise itself from the scriptural. So look at Ephesus. To the overcomer who loves Christ first and foremost, Christ promises abundant life with him in an eternal paradise. Revelation. 2, verse 7, here it is. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, you will remember that Ephesus, in the busyness of Christian ministry, they had left their first love, Jesus. They had neglected the priority of worshiping Christ. Their Christianity had deteriorated to where it became a routine to endure rather than a relationship to enjoy. They were motivated more out of duty for Christ rather than delight in Christ. And they gave Jesus, as we saw in this church, virtually everything he could ever ask for except the one thing he wanted most, their heartfelt attention, affection, and allegiance. Now, why does Christ want 
your heartfelt love. And do not miss this. Because he desires intimacy with you. He desires intimacy with you. Reality is, you are either opening your heart wider to him, or you're closing it up. And remember, it is not only sin that closes your heart to Christ, but like Ephesus, it can be busyness. It can be just simple neglect. Because Christ desires intimacy with his bride, he commanded the believers at Ephesus to remember, to repent, and to return to him as their first love. And then he gave the overcomer's promise to those who obey his command. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life of course, is a symbol of Jesus Christ and the eternal life He offers. The tree of life was first seen in the Garden of Eden, Eden, where we are told that those who eat of the tree shall what? Never die. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden and they were denied access to the tree of life. The tree of life is next seen in heaven. In Revelation 22, verse 2 being freely offered to all the citizens of heaven as a source of eternal life and healing. And it's important to understand what eternal life is. Eternal life is not the mere fact that a believer lives forever. A lot of believers have that concept. It's just the fact that we live forever. Now, that's true, but eternal life means much, much more than that. Eternal life is the fact that we live forever in conscious union and intimacy with Christ as part of His bride to experience all the joys and pleasures of an eternal, intimate relationship with Christ. That's eternal life, sharing in His life in an intimate relationship with Him. And a believer's love for Christ not only confirms the authenticity of his relationship with Christ, but also guarantees abundant life with Christ in an eternal paradise. Now, in light of the offer that he makes to love us throughout all eternity, how can we not love him now? That's the simple point. How can we not love him now? How can we not love him now with all of our heart, with all of our mind? with all of our soul, with all of our strength. Move to Smyrna. This would sum up the promise. To the overcomer who is faithful to Christ in suffering, Christ promises rescue from God's judgment and the reward of the victor's crown. Revelation chapter 2, we see the promise in verses 10 and 11. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. You'll remember Smyrna was the severely persecuted church. Uh, Christ had no word of rebuke for this church, only the command. And that command was, do not fear what you are about to suffer, but be faithful what? To death. He did not offer them deliverance in this life. Matter of fact, he forewarns them 
that many of you are going to be imprisoned, and there'll be some of you that suffer death. And so his admonition is, do not fear what you're about to suffer. You be faithful to death. Do not uh, deny me. Remain loyal in your love to me. And then following the command comes the overcomer's promise. I will give you the crown of life. He overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. The crown of life is literally the victor's crown, uh, which is a special honor given to those who remain faithful to Christ in suffering to demonstrate their love for Christ. You could call it heaven's medal of honor. Uh, we read in James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is a man who perseveres, who, who, who endures under trial, under severe testing. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord promised to those who love him. In other words, we demonstrate our love through faithfulness and suffering to him. As we stated when we looked at the church in Smyrna, uh, we have the best opportunity to demonstrate what we value by our willingness to suffer for it. You're only willing to suffer for that which you value most. Now, the second death is defined for us in Revelation 20, verse 14. Uh, this is the second part of the promise. Not only the crown of life, but you won't be hurt by the second death. And this is what we read in Revelation 20, verse 14. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The second death is not annihilation, but conscious eternal separation from God and damnation in hell. The point of the overcomer's promise is obvious. A believer may experience persecution, even death for their love for Christ. But they can know with absolute certainty in the end, they will be winners. While their persecutors will be the ultimate losers. So our faithfulness to Christ in suffering confirms the value that we place on our relationship with Christ, our salvation with Christ. And the worth uh, we, uh, that we give him. And the eternal war reward he promises encourages us to remain faithful. So followers of Christ may suffer a martyr's death in this life, but they will never suffer the second death in the next. Uh, the great encouragement to every believer should be this. There is no sacrifice. Listen now. There's no sacrifice we can ever make in this life that can be compared with our reward in the next. I think of two passages. There are more that we could share. But the first is Matthew 10, verses 27 through 29. It says, Then Peter said to him, said to Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? I mean, you know Peter, he was bold. He said, we've left it all for you. So what's there going to be for us? And Jesus didn't rebuke him. He actually encourages them. He says, and Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, 
or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. There's a clear promise. There's nothing that you can sacrifice for me, Jesus says. Well, I will not reward you a hundred times over. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verses 34 through 36 The writer is looking back to a time when these Hebrew Christians severely suffered persecution for their faith. And he says, you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. That's quite a statement. In other words, these were believers. And just like us, they had earned a living. They, many of them, had bought homes. They had property. They had possessions, but because of their devotion to Christ, because of persecution, the Romans came in and confiscated their goods, confiscated their homes and their property, leaving them destitute. And notice their response. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Why? Well, it goes on and says, knowing. This is why they were able to accept that joyfully. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need for of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So to the overcomer, faithful in suffering uh, for Christ, uh, Christ promises rescue from God's judgment, will not be hurt from the second death, and will be rewarded the victor's crown. Look at the church in Pergamum. We can sum up the promise this way, to the overcomer who walks in uncompromising obedience to God's Word, Christ promises His presence and provision throughout eternity and special recognition in heaven. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. You know, we were told in Christ's message to the church in Pergamum that they literally dwelt where Satan's throne is. They were not just in enemy's territory, but their church existed in the very shadow of Satan's headquarters. They were in a tough spot. Uh, One of their leaders, Antipas, had already suffered martyrdom for his uh, love for Jesus. Uh, Christ commended this church for holding fast to his name and not, not denying the faith. But there was a serious problem in the church if you remember when we looked at it. Uh, Although the majority in the church remained very loyal to Christ, there was a small minority who had embraced false teaching. And this group promoted the idea that a believer could lower their standards of faith in order to avoid persecution and suffering, to be able to fit more comfortably in the world and culture around them Uh, to be able to escape uh, suffering and persecution. Uh, They were encouraging believers uh, to participate in pagan feasts and the idolatrous worship and immorality that accompanied those pagan feasts. Christ's command to the church was to repent 
of not removing this false teaching. And then he warned them if they did not remove it, he was coming to make war with them with the sword of his mouth. And then following the command comes the overcomer's promise to those who obey the command to repent and walk in uncompromising obedience to God's word. And here, there it is, to him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. The reference to manna takes us back, of course, to John chapter 6, where Jesus, you remember, presents himself as the true and living bread of heaven, which came to earth to bring abundant and eternal life to all who receive him. The incredible point in this overcomer's promise is this. Although believers taste and enjoy the manna of Christ's life right now, there is a day coming when we will feast upon it in a much greater way. And that, of course, is when we all get to heaven. The fact that the manna is now hidden tells us the half has not been told. We have not yet experienced the full blessing of Christ's presence and provision. We have just had a taste to whet our appetites. Now, do not miss the poetic justice that's being served here. The false teachers were encouraging the believers to compromise their faith and to participate in idolatrous, immoral, pagan feasts. Jesus' promise is, if you refuse to compromise, if you stay true to me, there's a better feast coming. I will give you a heavenly feast beyond belief. So why shortchange yourself with the junk food of this world and the temporary gratification it offers when you can feast on my presence, when you can feast on my provision that will give eternal satisfaction and enjoyment. This overcomer's promise helps us to see just how utterly empty the food of this world is and how utterly fantastic our future fellowship with Christ will be when we experience the fullness of His presence and provision. But there's even more. For those who refuse to compromise God's Word and stay true to Christ, they will also be given, he says, special recognition in heaven. Notice he said, I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. I believe this portion of the promise needs to be understood in light of the Roman custom of awarding white stones to the victors in athletic contests. The Romans would inscribe the name of the victor on the white stone, and then that white stone would become uh, the victor's ticket to a very special awards banquet uh, where that person would be honored uh, for the victory that he had won. And notice, Christ gives the overcomer what? A new name. It seems to me, and of course this is speculation, we're not told what that new name is, but it seems to me that the new name will capture the essence of the victor's character and conquest. Uh, the new name will highlight 
the transformation of character brought about by God's power working in the believer and to memorialize the work that was accomplished for God, the, the work that they finished that God had given them to do here on earth. And can you even imagine to be honored by Christ in this way? I mean, just, ref- just meditate on that a few moments. Uh, to be able to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter now the joy of your Lord, and then Christ calling you by a new name in honor of your character, in honor of your conquest uh, for Him. It's sort of, if you've ever been to any uh, funeral that I've done for a, a church member, I always ask God to give me a, a verse or a passage that seems to uh, capture the heart of that individual that we're, we're, we're honoring. Uh, and, and, and so I normally will share a verse that sort of captures, I believe, the essence of that person, what God did in and through them. And I think that's what he's talking about here. But lest there be any, must, uh, any misunderstanding, let me be very clear about something. The character acquired by the believer and the conquest achieved is all by God's grace and God's grace alone. And this is why we read in Revelations 4 that the crowns we receive from Christ as rewards are what? Cast down before Him. Cast down before His throne as we bow before Him and we proclaim. You remember what it says there in Revelation 4? Worthy are Thou. Our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for Thou didst create all things And because of thy will, they uh, exist and were created. So our obedience to God's word not only confirms our relationship with Christ, not only confirms our love for Christ, because Christ said what? If you love me, you will what? Obey my commands. Remember the Apostle John said in 1 John, If any man says he knows me, but he does not obey my commands, he's a what? A liar and the truth is not in him. So obedience to God's Word not only confirms our salvation, but the reward that Jesus is offering through this overcomer promises should provide great incentive, great motivation to maintain faithfulness to Him, to maintain obedience to His Word, to stay true uh, to Him. Now look at the church at Thyatira and... uh, I might could have gone a little bit further this morning, but we'll end with this one right here. Thyatira. Notice summing up the promise to the overcomer who walks in moral purity and grows in holy character, Christ promises a special position of power and glory and assisting him to administer his millennial kingdom on earth. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 26, 27, and 28. And he who overcomes... And he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. Now going back to our study of the church in Thyatira, you remember Christ commended this church for their faith, uh, for their service, uh, for their perseverance. He commended them for the fact that their deeds of late were greater than at first. There had been growth in this church, 
But even worse than in the church of Pergamum, there was a grave, grave uh, problem that existed in this church family. Uh, the church, we're told, was tolerating a false prophetess uh, whom Jesus called Jezebel. Uh, we're told she was, lit, she was actually leading some of the believers in the church astray to commit acts of immorality. Jesus said he had given this Jezebel ample time to repent, but she refused. And because of her refusal to repent, he pronounces judgment on her, that he would cast her into a bed of sickness, which of course is signifying her death. He was going to take her out. And then he warned all who had followed her into immorality to repent, to turn back to him, or he says, I'm going to also kill you with pestilence. Christ then issued this command to the church, a very simple command, hold fast until I come. Hold fast until I come. I think the, 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 the heart of that, the thrust of that is captured in Romans 12, 9, when it says, let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, don't be double-minded in your walk with Christ, trying to walk with Him and live in the world. Um, be single-hearted, single-minded, and then that verse goes on and says, abhor what is evil and what? You know what the rest of it says? And cling, embrace what is good. And I, th I think that's what he's, he's, he's communicating to this church. He says, love me without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is, is good, walk in holiness, grow in my character. Now, after the command comes the overcomer's promise again. And he who overcomes, who holds fast, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. Now, as you can see, Christ promises what? A special, special position of authority in his kingdom after he returns during his thousand-year reign on earth, which is known as the millennial kingdom. Now, this promise is simple, but I think the essence of it is very, very powerful. In essence, Christ, I believe, is saying this. As a believer, if you will learn to rule your passions in this life, I will give you the opportunity to rule in the next. And if you have done my works in this life, you will continue to do my works in the next life. This promise also clearly implies, I believe, that if we are rewarded according to the way we lived for the Lord in this life, and we know from Scripture that we are, especially those passages on the judgment seat of Christ, it relates to the believer, not whether we lose our salvation or not, that's secure, but our lives are examined on how we live for Christ, and He gives believers rewards accordingly. So again, if we are rewarded according to the way we live for the Lord in this life, and we know we are from the Scriptures, then certainly we will reign with Christ according to the way we lived for the Lord in this life. 
All Christians are not rewarded equally. Therefore, it is also true we will not reign equally. How much we reign with Christ will be conditioned upon the way we live for Him today. All believers enter Christ's kingdom by virtue of the new birth, but eternal rank in heaven is determined by growth in His character. Growth in holiness. Growth in righteousness. And I believe this is reinforced with the promise Christ will give us the morning star. Christ is called the morning star. Why? Because He radiates the very glory of God. Because He is God. The promise that we will be given the morning star indicates Christ will give us as believers the capacity in eternity to literally reflect His glory. Matter of fact, the Bible teaches we will be what? Clothed with His glory. It will radiate. You'll be able to see the glow, see the shine. Each believer's capacity to reflect His glory, just like the determination of eternal rank, will be determined by growth in Christ-like character in this life. All believers will reflect Christ's glory, but not all to the same degree. The degree is determined by growth in Christ-like character in this life. Our eternal destiny is to shine as stars as we reflect the glory of Jesus, the bright and morning star. Amen? And of course, the fact that we hold fast, that we abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, stay true to Jesus... That confirms our salvation, the fact that we possess Christ and that He possesses us. Jesus, uh, or the Apostle John said, the one who uh, walks with Him ought to, or abides with Him ought to also what? Walk as He walked. But of course, this promise also encourages us to remain faithful in that holy walk, to resist temptation, to stay true to Him because of the great reward that is for us in the future. Now, as we sort of wrap this up for today, and we'll do those remaining three next Sunday when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, if the overcomer promises we have looked at today are not incentive enough to love Christ and remain faithful to Him, I literally don't know what more could be offered. I mean, what more could be said? If this does not excite us, I do not know what will excite us. I mean, just again, just review very, very quickly there in your notes, going back to Ephesus. To the overcomer who loves Christ first and foremost, he promises what? Abundant life with him in an eternal paradise. Conscious union and intimacy with Christ throughout all eternity in an eternal romance with him enjoying all the joys and pleasures that an intimate relationship with Jesus offers. Smyrna, to the overcomer who is faithful in, to Christ in suffering, Christ promises rescue from God's judgment and the reward of the victor's crown. What joy, what honor to receive that victor's crown, doing it out of a desire to please him, and again, knowing we only did it by His power and grace as we throw those crowns back down at His throne. And don't you want that opportunity to demonstrate that honor to the Lord by throwing your rewards at His feet? Pergamum, uh, to the overcomer who walks in uncompromising obedience to God's Word, Christ promises His presence and provision throughout eternity and special recognition in heaven. Again, I, I can't even begin to imagine 
the feast that we will have as we literally feed on the presence and provision of Christ throughout all eternity and then have the opportunity to have this special recognition in light of the character that was formed in us as Christ was displayed through us and as we finished the work that God had given us to do, to do here on earth. And then fire attire to the overcomer who walks in moral purity and grows in holy character Christ promises a special position of power and glory in assisting him to administer his millennial kingdom on earth. So again, our faithfulness to him now, growing in Christ-like character, determines our eternal rank in heaven, that we'll we'll have a position to reign and to rule with him, to literally assist in the administration of his millennial kingdom. And as we do that, to share in his glory where He radiates that glory because, in essence, He is God, we will be reflectors of that glory. And our capacity to reflect that glory, will again, will be determined by our growth in Christ-like character here on earth. So I trust this does excite us. This does encourage us to see the foolishness of chasing the things of this world when we have all of this offered through us, to us in Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. And also keep in mind, and I think this is important to say, you you might be sitting there and say, you know, I have miserably failed. We don't miss the, 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 the simple observation that all the seven churches except two had failed pretty miserable. And yet Jesus gives every one of them the opportunity to what? To repent. To turn back to him. And notice. He says if you repent. And you turn back to me. You'll have the full blessing of the overcomer's promise. So. Those promises are extended to every one of us. And we all have the opportunity to know the full blessings. Of each and every one. Amen. Bow with me in prayer. Father. Um. I trust this has been very encouraging truth to see that a better day does truly await us as believers. Father, you know in our human frailty that we are so susceptible and vulnerable in this life to brokenness, to pain, to perplexity. Uh, to doubt. Um, Father, we acknowledge that. And we acknowledge in our human frailty, we often become weary in the battle. And Lord, we confess we are tempted to retreat. We are tempted at times to even give up, just to throw in the towel. But Lord, thank you for the wonderful encouragement that we receive through these promises not to lose heart, not to give up, but to continue to press forward despite the suffering, despite the trials, despite the adversity, despite the challenges, knowing that there will be eternal reward for all who remain faithful to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we thank you for the wonderful transformation that you've brought in our lives uh, through Jesus possessing us. 
And we thank you that uh, through these promises, we have the uh, opportunity to see uh, our salvation confirmed in the way we live, the way we walk, but also in these promises to be encouraged to uh, remain faithful to you in all things. Uh, For it's in Christ's name we do pray. Amen.